All right, we can go ahead and turn our Bibles to Colossians 1. Colossians 1 will be in verses 15 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn up in there or find it on your app. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. We're going to be camped out there this morning, so go ahead and get comfortable. Those five verses, there's enough there. We could be camped out a lot longer than this morning. This past week, I was in Nashville on appointment. I was, uh, we got one of our biggest clients down there. Um, I was going down there to go meet with him. His name is Sam. Uh, I was bringing two new co-workers who are kind of, you know, newer to the team. They haven't met this guy. So I wanted to go introduce them, kind of facilitate some good conversation, have a good time down there. So we're down in Nashville. We stop in at a busy restaurant. We just get sat down and uh, conversation's going good. It's going good. It's, it's nice. It's lighthearted. It's easy. You know, we're talking about all the, the you know, you have, kind of have to build rapport whenever you're in sales. You don't normally start off with, hey, how can I get you to spend more money? You know, we don't normally lead with that. Um, so we kind of build rapport a little bit. We're, we're just chatting and want to introduce everyone. We're talking lighthearted stuff. I'm emphasizing it's light and shallow conversation. We're talking movies, travel, etc., etc. Where, you know, where'd you go to school? Where'd you grow up? Those kinds of things. And at some point, while we're talking about this, you know, these lighthearted things, we're chuckling a little bit back and forth. I say the word wisdom or I say wise at some point. I, I think I said something along the lines of like, hey, it might be wise if blah, blah, blah. It doesn't matter. I just said that word. And in the middle of all this, my client, Sam, looks at me and says, so what is wisdom? <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> Does everybody else know what they want to eat? I'm ready to order. Does everyone, everyone else ready for that? With three words, Sam totally like changed the direction of the conversation. With three words, he totally like shifted focus of our conversation. Our passage this morning, verses 15 through 20 of Colossians 1, kind of have a similar effect on the rest of Colossians. Don't want to skip over verses 1 through 14. They're good stuff, rich. There's a lot of, a lot of really good stuff there to mine, a lot of good treasures there. But it's, it's, a, it's on the lighter side. Um, Paul's kind of, you know, he's, he's encouraging the, the believers there at Colossae. He's saying, hey, I'm hearing these things about you. It's great news. I'm encouraged. I want to let you know that, that we're encouraged by you, so we're going to be praying these things for you. It's all really good stuff. But then verses 15 through 20, he just drops the hammer. He is the image of the invisible God. I, I want us to kind of call attention and not gloss over what Paul is doing here. Because the original listeners, they would have been listening to the, to the reader as he's reading this to the church. And they're all encouraged. And Jesus says, or I mean, uh, Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God. And the listeners would have been like, it's time to perk up. We are 15 verses in here. We haven't even gotten chips and salsa. We've just sat down, and he's dropping some heavy theology on us fast. So if we've been kind of waiting around in the shallow waters of theology, it's deep end time. Really fast there for Paul. So I want to call attention to that because we're, we're relatively familiar with um, Colossians. This passage in particular is kind of one of the more ones that we've, we've spent some time in before. So I don't want to miss the gravity of what Paul is doing here with verses 15 through 20. Because there's huge theological implications for what he's saying 
here in verses 15 through 20. So with that in mind, the original listeners, the original hearers, they're perking up, so let's perk up. Let's hear the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you are the invisible, the mysterious God, and yet you've not, you've not kept us in the dark. You've given us your word so that we might know you, so that we might uh, know about you and come to know you. You've surrounded us with living canvas of art and creation. All of which points to you and even more you've shown. You've shown yourself to us so clearly in your son. So I pray that uh, you empower us with your spirit to uh, hold fast to him. To look to your son, to grab hold of him. And to fix our eyes on him so that we might see and know you more fully. Amen. Alright. There's a lot here so it's packed so let's get started. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. First point or first thought of the day, Jesus, the mirror image of God. You guys are taking notes. Jesus, the mirror image of God. Paul says he is the image of the invisible God. So all throughout the Old Testament, um, after the garden, man, tainted by sin, is not able to look at God. So God in his, in his mercy has remained somewhat hidden. Um, you couldn't, you just couldn't see him. Whenever he does appear, you know, like on the top of Mount Sinai, he comes down and he's concealed in cloud and smoke and thunder and lightning. Whenever he, his presence descends on the temple, it's a, you know, this bright, shiny mist. We can't see God. And, and I also don't just mean like physically, like we can't behold him with our eyes. We actually, there are parts of his nature and his character that we don't all get kind of all at once. God is revealing himself to his people and to members of our, uh, you know, characters and individuals in the Old Testament, kind of piece by piece. It's, in, it's incremental revelation. We don't see him all. At times we see his mercy. At times we see justice. At times we see love. At times we see wrath. At times we see uh, forgiveness. Other times we see holiness. We're not all kind of, I mean, it's all there. He's the same. But it seems like we're kind of getting him piecemeal throughout the story. And then Paul says here, though, not anymore. We can see him. Because we have the image of the invisible God that's remained hidden. We have him right here in Jesus. First John begins with, uh, that apostle begins with the, the or that, that letter begins with the apostle saying, Hey, we've seen him with our own eyes. We've touched him with our hands. Now before I use this illustration too, we all know that every analogy breaks down. <laughs> And whenever you try to use an analogy to 
talk about the character of God, you normally end up accidentally teaching heresy. So just go, go easy on me here. Um, but essentially, Jesus is the mirror image of God. We're not able to look at God, but we can look at the Son. And He is the mirror image. He's the, the radiant. He's the image, the exact likeness, the true representation of God the Father. So in the same way that we look at a mirror and we see a true likeness of ourselves, whether we like it or not, that's us. And that's the same thing with Jesus. We see Him, and so we see the Father. First, or John 1.18 says, Nobody, no one has ever seen the Father, but the Son at His right hand. He has made him known. So how has the Son made the Father known? He's the visible representation. He's the image of the invisible God right there in front of you. This next line, the other half of verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. And then it says the firstborn of all creation. That's worth taking a, a brief second of explanation there. He's the firstborn of all creation. So does that mean that he's created or does that mean that he was born? No. Uh, this is just kind of a poetic way of saying that he's at the top of something or he's um, it's a positional statement less to do with like how he came into being and more about like what position he holds. When I say this is my firstborn, I'm not saying so this is how he came into existence and then go into that. I'm not trying to you don't gather that from that statement. You say, OK, he's his oldest. He's he he ranks somewhere and he's my first. And normally, uh, also sometimes we, we do it whenever we're talking about somebody's personality. We're like, oh, he's a firstborn. And we all kind of know what that means. Um, I know. Yeah, both of my parents. Yeah, those firstborns. <laughs> um, so it's less of a statement about like how he came into being and more about like his positional authority as it relates to something. And it says here as... It's basically in relation to creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. So that leads us into verse 16 in our our second thought of the day. Jesus, he makes the Corvettes and he drives them home. Jesus, he makes the Corvettes and he drives them home. So we're going to look at verse 16. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So all things were created through Jesus. What does that mean? We, he's the word. He's the word of God and he's there at the beginning. We know in scripture that in Genesis, God makes everything by the power of his word. He's speaking things into existence. Jesus is the word by which God is creating. So he's there at the beginning of Genesis. He's there creating things, making things. He's building. He's crafting. Uh, he's, I kind of I envision him like forming up the Himalayans with like the same amount of ease that my, that my boys play with sand at the beach. He's drawn the rings around Saturn. He's dotting Jupiter with an eye. He's creating everything. And then Paul takes a second. He clarifies by everything or by all. What is when you, say God, when you say that Jesus created all things, what do you mean by that, Paul? Well, I mean things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Uh, and scholars and commentators kind of agree that heaven and earth, visible and invisible, he's kind of saying the same thing twice there. So you have the, the visible, the tangible realm here, things that we can see with our eyes on earth. And then you also have the heavens, or things that are like in the spiritual realm that are unseen to our eyes. Jesus created both of those things. And any, 
what does it say? Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Any type of position, any type of office or authority that you can think of, Jesus made that. And he made the being or the person that holds that office. Jesus reigns over everything. Towards the end of that verse, it says, All things were created through him and for him. Now, not only were things made through him, but for him. And that's, that's a, a difference worth noting. There are a lot of guys down at the Corvette factory that are making Corvettes all day long. But they're not driving them home. So they could rightfully say, yeah, the Corvette is made through us, but it's not for us. Not so with Jesus. He is making all things, and all things are made for him, for his good pleasure. When I look at that passage and I think about like the, the thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, my mind kind of instantly goes to the angels. Um, all throughout Scripture, we see uh, angels. They're normally described in like these vague descriptions, kind of ascribing their splendor. That's basically, and it's always vague because we can't quite capture the majesty of these things. And normally whoever has seen them is also like terrified. They're also normally like scared to death. So we get, they're, they're splendid and they're horrifying. And I think Jesus made those. He spoke them into being. World War II photos and videos, they show, you know, Hitler and Stalin. They've kind of got their, their chin up and they're looking over their soldiers as they're parading before them. Or like out in the plaza, there's thousands of troops. And, or, you know, Hitler's looking at, like, the troops parading in front of him and all the weapons and kind of implying, you know, hey, these are mine and these will go wherever I tell them to go. And that's power. That's scary. But then you compare that, that vision of power with Jesus who makes angels. He says, Michael, and the archangel comes into existence. Unimaginably strong and powerfully Impossibly powerful, able to make quick work of all the armies of the earth. So, whatever dictator, world leader, powerful, past, present, weak sauce compared to Jesus. He makes all things, he makes the Corvettes, and all things are created for him. He drives the Corvettes home. Second thought. Okay, so now our third thought, moving on into verses 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Next thought. Jesus, not a New York City dog walker. Jesus, he's not a New York City dog walker. Hang on here. So he opens up with, he says, he's before all things. And that's a parallel to kind of saying what he said about the firstborn of, of, of all creation. By saying he's before all things, it's not just a reference to like chronology. It's not just saying, hey, he was there at the beginning. He was. But that's not really, it's more saying it's a, it's a comment again about his status or his position. He is over all things. And then this line that I love, one of my favorites in all of scripture. In him, all things Hold together. Now, when I think about that, my mind goes like microscopically small and then simultaneously like universally big, cosmos big. Take a deep breath. You can thank Jesus for that because he's holding nitrogen and oxygen together and allowing us to breathe the air that we're in right now. He's doing that so that we can stay conscious long enough to think about this next thought. Think about the moon. 
and Jupiter and the suns and the millions and millions of other stars light years away. Jesus is holding them all together. And he's not like a New York City dog walker that we kind of see like in the movies where there's like 17 dogs and, you know, they're kind of like holding on and getting pulled. And he's holding all things together in that way. Jesus isn't sweating. The Dobermans and the, and the, you know, the bulldogs, they're not pulling him. He says, sit, stay, and the planets obey him. The universe is heeding his command. He holds all things together. Fourth point, moving into verses 18. Uh, this is kind of a transition. This is a little bit of a transition, really. Verses 15 through 17 have been kind of talking about Jesus' authority as it relates to, uh, like, the universe and kind of, uh, like, the cosmos in general. Like, he is over all things. But now there's going to be a little bit of a transition where his authority is going to relate to us. So in what ways does he rule over all things or what ways does his power impact us? We read here. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now he's speaking of his relation to us. He's the head of the church. Now, the church has been given pastors. We've been given elders and ministers and overseers and shepherds. But they are not the head. I think all of our elders would be quick to say, like, hey, we're not the head. They are servants of the head and they're members of the body, of which Christ alone is the head. Amen. And church, hear me. If we are not connected, if we are not in submission, if we are not submitting to the head, only two things happen. When a member of the body gets disconnected from the head, two things happen. Paralysis, death. That's it. Outside of the head, not much. It's cold. Cold and lifeless. So, Paul uses the analogy of the body for a reason. We are all connected to one another, and we're all entirely, totally dependent on the head. Moving on in verse 18, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, to understand what it means to be the firstborn from the dead, this is in relation to uh, his resurrection, so that he's conquered death. So we're seeing that here. How does that relate to us? Um, I think... Paul uses another analogy, or he kind of uses another expression in 1 Corinthians in, in 15. He refers to Jesus' resurrection as a kind of first fruits. I think that's a really good um, explanation, a little bit easier than maybe talking about the firstborn from the dead, what that might mean. So what does it mean to be first fruits? So follow me here. If we, in Christ, die, and we're in Christ, when we are planted in the ground... And I use the word planted intentionally. If we're planted in the ground, if we're buried like a seed, then we can look to Jesus and see, okay, what happened to him when he was buried? Well, he sprouts forth. He springs forth healthy, alive, never to die again. So that's our hope as well. If we go in the same manner, if we're going in Christ, then we have a hope. Now we're going we're gonna to burst forth. We're going to spring from the grave as well. Think of... A farmer overlooking his field, he has, he has worked the soil, he's tilled it, the, the seeds are in the ground, and he's waiting for the first signs of fruit. Think of Beatty over here, looking at a strawberry farm. And he's looking at all those bushes, and he's waiting for the first fruit, first strawberry, and he sees it, he goes to there and pulls it, and eats it. Oh, baby, it's going to be a good crop. 
And so it is with us. That's our hope. Jesus is the first. He's the first. But we know, praise God, we know there's going to be a lot more strawberries. <laughs> there's a host to follow. That's, that's our hope. Here's another way to think of it. Many have fallen asleep in death. Many have been imprisoned uh, by the grave. We've been held captive in the tomb. But when Jesus goes to the grave, he goes to the grave holding keys. And he unlocks it from the inside. And I don't imagine him kind of like ceremoniously. Like I imagine him like kicking open the door of death. Or like every 80s action movie. There's always like this scene where all the good guys have kind of like... You know, they've all like assembled around the bad guy base, fort, whatever. And they're all kind of waiting there like, Roger, Roger, like, what's going on here? I'm waiting to attack. And then the hero, you hear him. And he's in a red Mustang and he's flying down the main pathway to that main gate going like 80 miles per hour, impervious to bullets somehow. And he explodes through the gate and he rolls out the side and he's got a grenade launcher or like a chain gun and he's wreaking havoc on bad dudes. That's what I think of when I think of Jesus firstborn from the dead. So ladies, y'all can think of baby strawberries. Uh, you know, I mean, that's biblical. He's the first rose on the rose bush. He's the first tulip in the spring garden. That's good. Guys, we can think of Jesus as like Chuck Norris, roundhouse kicking death in the teeth. Verse 19, fifth point. I realize I didn't say the fourth point, so whatever. Fifth point. Jesus, 100% God. Read with me here. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. I think that's, yeah, we'll stop right there. Now, what does it mean? To say that all the fullness of God dwelled in him. I think that means that we are safe to say that whatever we know to be true about God the Father. In, in terms of his nature and his character. We can say it is true of the Son. His wisdom, his power, his righteousness. All of it has been conferred to the Son. So that the Father might be glorified in him. His love, His grace, His mercy, His justice, His holiness, all of that is there 100% in Jesus. And when we say the fullness, we're not saying like, okay, Jesus has 75% of God's mercy and 83% capacity on God's power. No, 100%. It's all there. And that's that's going to play a really important part in this next line. We'll finish in verse 20. And through him, let me, let me back up, I'll start at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So God reconciles all things to himself through Jesus. Now, what does reconcile mean? Quick dictionary search. Reconcile means to restore relationships. It means to settle a dispute. It means to bring about harmony where there was discord or to bring peace where there was war. So that's what it means to reconcile. And this passage says that God restores relationship with us. That God settles a dispute between us and him. That God brings peace to where there was once war between righteous and holy God and rebellious sinful man. That's what this passage is saying that, Jesus, that God does, and he does it through Jesus. So we know that it can resolve in peace. We know that there can be reconciliation, that 
peace can come from the war. But how? How specifically? Paul tells us. And that leads us to our final point. The blood of Jesus is our peace. So let's finish in verse 20. He's reconciling to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So how did God reconcile us to him? By the blood of Jesus. What stopped the war? What settled the dispute? What restored relationship? The blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood can turn me, an enemy of God, into an eternal ally, into a friend, into a, a member of God's family, into a son who's in line to receive an inheritance. That's the power of Jesus' blood. And let's backtrack real quick. Beginning of verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was placed as well. We said that was important. Why is that really important on this next line? Why is it vital that all the fullness of God dwelled in Jesus? Because if God, infinite in nature, is pouring out infinite wrath and infinite justice on our sin, then it takes a God-man who is 100% God who possesses all of the righteousness and holiness of God, to be able to absorb that justice, to be able to absorb that wrath on our sin. That's the only way that God's going to be satisfied. So it's absolutely vital that the fullness of God is present in Jesus when He sheds His blood. Listen, the blood of Jesus is our peace. His anguish is our peace. His brokenness, His sacrifice, His turmoil, His pain is our peace. The image of the invisible God who holds all things together, who oversees ants and oversees galaxies, both of which were made for His good pleasure, puts a cross on His back, labors up Mount Calvary, and pours His life's blood out to win us peace. Hebrews tells us it's once and for all. It's done. Jesus screams it from the cross. It's finished. Amen. Over. The blood of Jesus is our peace. That is how God is reconciled to him, and it's a huge cost. So, how to respond? How to respond to that news? One, worship him. Remember. <laughs> Remember and tell one another about him. There's a lot of us here. This should be on our lips. This is something that we talk about. We remind each other of this because we forget. Fill your lungs with air and sing praise to Him in the car alone or not alone. Whisper gratitude to Him in your prayer closet. Speak His praises at, in home and at the workplace. Tell others about Him so that they can know, so that they can worship Him, <laughs> that they can give Him praises. And two, if you're not reconciled with God, if you feel like you are still at war with Him, and you're hearing about what has been done on your behalf, let me just encourage you. Repent. Give up. Surrender. White flag. Jesus is calling. He's beckoning for you to come. And you might feel like, I don't know if I'm worthy. You're not. And that's okay. <laughs> that's what Jesus did. That's what he, he makes us worthy by, by pouring his blood out over us. I want to encourage you too. If you feel like not good enough, just remember, 
Jesus made all things, and he can remake all things.